From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. We're joined this week by Simon Kofe, the foreign minister of Tuvalu, a small country about halfway between Australia and Hawaii. He recorded a viral video for the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, where he stands knee-deep in the Pacific Ocean, where he says was once land. We talk about Tuvalu and what would happen if the islands making up Tuvalu were to go underwater. Also, John Swartzberg, he's the clinical professor at the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley. He's joined me before to discuss COVID, but this week we talk about vaccines, variants, and even more. Also, this is Jeopardy. Jeopardy has been on the news a lot lately, and we close the show today talking with Christopher Stuckey, who was on the show earlier this year as a contestant. We talk about preparation for the show, what it was like to meet Matt Amodio, the long-term champ, and more. That's all coming up on News Nerds, the show for intellectuals or aspiring intellectuals. Today we start the episode with my interview with Foreign Minister Simon Kofe. Simon Kofe is the foreign minister for Tuvalu, a small country consisting of nine islands. It's located about halfway between Australia and Hawaii. Tuvalu is the fourth smallest country in the world with an area of 10 square miles. Minister Kofe recorded a video of himself knee-deep in the Pacific Ocean for the COP26 summit in Glasgow. He joins us now over Zoom from Tuvalu. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you tell me a little bit more about what Tuvalu is? Uh, Tuvalu is a, um, is a Pacific Island country uh, located about halfway between Hawaii and uh, Australia. It's made up of uh, eight islands. The highest point on land is four meters above sea level. Uh, it's the fourth smallest country in the world uh, with a land area of about 26 square kilometers. In terms of population, there's about 12,000 people uh, living in, in Tuvalu. So you recorded this video for COP26. Uh, tell me more about why you chose to record your statement from literally in the Pacific Ocean. You're knee deep in the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, uh, um, you know, because of COVID-19, we had to scale down our, our team that we sent to, to Glasgow for the meeting. So I um, decided to, to, to stay back. Uh, however, I was invited to make an opening statement at one of the COP26 uh, side events on climate mobility. And uh, on the first week, our Prime Minister had delivered uh, a speech as well, and he highlighted to the, to, to the meeting that uh, Tuvalu is, is actually sinking. Uh, so when I thought about uh, where to shoot my video, I thought it would, uh, would make sense to, to demonstrate you know, the, the realities of, of what we're facing here in, in Tuvalu. So, I made the decision to go out at sea and, uh, and, and shoot the, the video. And um, where I was actually standing uh, used to be land, uh, uh, dry land uh, many years ago. So it was good to, to demonstrate that uh, climate change is affecting us now. It's, it's not something that is uh, in the future. So how is climate change affecting Tuvalu right now? Well, in, in, in many ways, um, obviously with uh, sea level rise, we were seeing um, coastal erosion and certain parts of the islands also uh, going underwater. You know, the, the changes in weather patterns, droughts and, and stronger cyclones. So, so those are all the, the, the impacts that we're feeling with, uh, with, with climate change. And I'm sure other uh, parts of the world as well are going through the, the, the same thing. 
So you see many activists protesting against uh, the COP26 because they think it's just it's just not enough to curb climate change. Do you think that the COP26 was successful? I think if you if you look at it from uh, the point of view that we're trying to limit to 1.5 uh, degrees, which is the the target that we had set for ourselves, then the the COP meeting fell way short of that. Uh, and in fact, with the pledges that have already been made by leaders uh, at COP, reports are saying that even with those pledges, we're looking at a 2.4 or 2.6 uh, degrees increase. Uh, so I think um, it's, it's well short of the target that we were expecting, we were hoping for. But otherwise, the, the, there have been some positive uh, steps taken as well by some countries in increasing the, um, the cuts on, on, uh, on emissions. But I, th- I think there's time for us to, to continue um, lobbying and, and advocating uh, these issues uh, going into uh, next year. There's already two out of the nine islands of Tuvalu that are that are going underwater, on the verge of going underwater. Tell me about uh, what's happened with those two islands. Well, they're actually islets. And so with the, the, the eight islands that we have in Tuvalu, uh, each island uh, was... A couple of the islands have uh, islets that, that uh, form a lagoon. So on the capital, which is uh, Funafuti, there are about 32 uh, little islets that form a, a large uh, lagoon. Uh, so two of those islets uh, in, the, in that group have, have disappeared in, in uh, you know, the past years because of, of sea level rise and also um, strong cyc- cyclones that, that we've experienced in, in recent years. Uh, so those two islets are completely submerged. So scientists are predicting that in 50 to 100 years, Tuvalu will be uninhabitable. Are Tuvalu's people leaving the islands because of this? Yeah, we do have um, people leaving. Um, I think the trend is, is the, there's a flow of migrants to, to New Zealand and to Australia. Uh, those are the, the, the two biggest countries in our, in our part of the world. But we, we are also uh, looking at ways to, to protect ourselves. We have uh, adaptation projects uh, at the moment that are ongoing, uh, looking at uh, reclaiming land and uh, raising our islands. That's the approach that we, uh, we are taking at the moment. And, but we're also looking at uh, ways we can um, secure our statehood as, yeah, under international law uh, should we uh, get to that uh, situation where we, we are forced to relocate or our islands are submerged. And we are also hoping that we can uh, maintain our ownership of our, uh, of our maritime zones should we get to that uh, point as well. Do you know if Tuvalu's population is going down because of the people that are leaving? It's, it, it's been um, at around ten to 12,000 for the past few, few years now. Obviously, there are births and, and people leaving, so it's been a very steady flow of uh, people to of overseas. If Tuvalu does go underwater, what countries will be, you know, will be accepting uh, your citizens? Uh, uh, we, Fiji, in fact, Fiji, a couple of years ago, had made a, a public announcement that they would be happy to, to host uh, Tuvalu, should Tuvalu go underwater in, in the future. But that's the only country that has come out publicly with that. But uh, again, we, we're also very mindful in how we campaign and advocate on uh, relocation uh, because we don't want uh, the, the other countries to use it as an excuse to just give us land and then we move and then that, that solves the problem with climate change. 
the the, the primary goal is to ensure that countries are, are taking stronger uh, climate action and reducing their, their greenhouse uh, gas emissions. So you talk about Tuvalu becoming an entirely digital country. What does this mean? Because we, we at this point, we've never really even heard about a digital country because uh, that, that technology is just so new. Yeah, in fact, I think the I'm not sure if you if you heard with the Facebook uh, changing the uh, the name to Meta, uh, and they were looking at technology of you know translating everything in the physical to 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 the cyber world, and you can you can basically do a lot of things remotely, and uh, I mean that that sort of technology is available now, and those are the sorts of the things we're looking at. How can we uh, digitize everything from cultural knowledge and cultural practices? Uh, government services um, so that if we do get to the stage where we have to relocate that uh, we can still operate in the cyber world at least. Simon Kofe, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you everyone, it's been a pleasure talking. COVID has been a part of our lives for more than a year now, almost two years, and John Schwartzberg has been with us at News Nerds through it all, and he joins us again today to discuss vaccines, variants, and even more. If you are fully vaccinated, and a good portion of the population now is, uh, should you go places without a mask? I wouldn't. I think that's unwise. If you're not fully vaccinated, other people are a substantial risk to you in terms of getting COVID, and you're a substantial risk to other people. I think this especially uh, occurs indoors, and that's where I would definitely have a mask on if you're not fully vaccinated. So the Pfizer vaccine is available for ages 5 to 11 now. Um, do you think that parents should make their kids wait before receiving the vaccine, or should they just go ahead and get that? Well. Let's, let's start by understanding what the risk to children is. Um, children get infected at the same rate as adolescents and young adults and older adults. So there's nothing about children that prevents them from getting infected. The good news is that children usually do not get as sick as older kids, adolescents, or adults. But unfortunately, children do get sick, and tragically, some get very sick and some die. So there are risks to getting COVID, and the risks can be, as I mentioned, very serious. They include the hospitalization in the intensive care unit, some deaths, fortunately not very many. Some children develop an inflammatory syndrome called multi-system inflammatory syndrome of childhood that lands them in the hospital or in the intensive care unit and can be very dangerous. And then there's always long COVID that can occur in children. So when looking at the known risks of the vaccine, which frankly are very, very few, with the known risks of a virus out there that is infecting children and can cause very significant disease, albeit far less than uh, older people, uh, I think that the scales clearly tilt towards getting your child vaccinated. Another way to think about it is it, it's only um, been out for a year. Well, that's true. But the vaccine has been given to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people on this planet, and they've been monitored 
the people in this country and in Western Europe have, have been monitored exquisitely carefully for any long-term complications, nothing showing up. The other thing to recognize is that in the long history, well over 100 years of uh, routine vaccination in this country, all essentially all of the serious complications, the long-term complications that can occur from a vaccine occur within the first six weeks to maybe out to eight weeks after immunization. That's why we we do these studies and we meticulously watch people for eight weeks before we really have a sense of confidence. So it's not like you're going to get vaccinated today and then five years later, something's going to come up. That's biologically not plausible. And we just haven't seen it in well over a hundred and something years of experience. And we're not seeing it now with well over a year with these vaccines. So I wouldn't worry about that aspect of it at all. It comes down to really, you know, holding off for another month or two months or three months before you vaccinate your child versus in those one month, two months or three months, could your child get COVID when you could have prevented that with the vaccine? So I, that's why I really tilt towards getting your child vaccinated. I have an 11-year-old granddaughter and she was first in line on the day that it was approved for kids 5 to 11. Her parents and her grandparents we were cheering her on. You mentioned that the uh, we haven't seen long-term side effects to most vaccines, but does it make a difference that these vaccines are mRNA? Um, would that make a difference in long-term side effects? Well, there's no biologically plausible reason why that should be the case. Um, so I, I really don't see any reason to consider that a concern. So the, only the Pfizer vaccine is available for kids right now, um, but will the Moderna and uh, J&J vaccines be available soon? I think the um, Moderna vaccine could be as soon as before the end of this year. J&J is going to probably lag behind that, but I think both are likely to get approval. I have to ask you about the Big Bird scandal, which uh, some Republicans were uh were you know i don't know how to describe it were mad because big bird from sesame street posted on twitter that uh he had gotten vaccinated because technically he's still six years old uh what do you make of that i thought it was silly i thought it was absolutely silly and nonsense um sesame street does a fabulous job educating children and you know big bird isn't going to lead the kid down to the doctor's office to get vaccinated, the parents are. It's the parents who are going to make the decision for the child, not Big Bird. So we're coming into the winter season and cases spiked last year during this time. Do you think that the cases of COVID-19 will do that again? I think we'll see a, um, a marked increase in cases um, beginning about seven, 10 days after Thanksgiving. We're already, unfortunately, seeing a steady increase in cases over the last almost three weeks now in the United States. And I think that's going to accelerate right after about a week to 10 days after Thanksgiving. And I think it's going to get worse throughout December because we've got after Thanksgiving, we've got all the Christmas parties and Christmas, and then we've got New Year's and all the parties surrounding that. So I think we're going to see a swell in cases throughout December and into and maybe through most of January. 
and that's really unfortunate. I think we, the reason why I don't think we're going to see anything as bad as last year, because I think everybody remembers how, how really terrible last December and January were, is because we now have a lot of people vaccinated. So that's going to protect them. Uh, it's certainly going to protect them very well, even without a booster in terms of hospitalization or death. And with the booster, it's going to help prevent against even getting infected and having a breakthrough. So you did, you mentioned Thanksgiving and the holidays. Um, how can people come together or should they just not gather at all? Well, if you're fully vaccinated and you trust that the people you're going to be with are not going to come if they have any symptoms that could be COVID, I think and if you're just around people vaccinated indoors, I think you can enjoy your Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. I try and keep the numbers of people small. I wouldn't have these real big parties. And of course, you have to trust everybody. So these would be people you know very well. Now, on the other hand, I would not be getting together with people indoors who are not vaccinated. I think I could represent a risk to them because I could be asymptomatically infected. And they could certainly represent a risk to me. There's talk of the, an antiviral pill from Pfizer and Merck uh, that will, that, that's being tested right now. Can you tell me more about that? Right. Uh, it's very exciting. Merck was the second one. Um, Pfizer was the first to come out with a pill called Molnupiravir. When you take it, the, the drug, interestingly, causes the virus when it replicates to make mistakes, and those mistakes are usually lethal to the virus. And the studies that were done with this uh, drug, if it was given within the first three days, it showed uh, better than 50% protection uh, against getting sicker and winding up in the hospital. So these studies were done in unvaccinated people who got COVID and they took the drug within three days. Even if they took it within five days of getting sick, they had some protection from the, from the uh, antiviral drug. It appeared to be well tolerated. Now, these studies were not real large. We need to see more data. And the data that we have right now is only uh, from the drug company itself. So it has to be scrutinized independently. But it's, it's very exciting. The other drug from Merck is uh, even more exciting, maybe. That is, it... it uh, was also studied in people who were not vaccinated who got COVID and took it within three days. They also took it, some of them took it within five days. If it was within three days, it prevented hospitalization and death in over 90% of the people who got COVID, which is fabulous. Now, immediately one would think, well, the, the Merck product is better than the Pfizer product, but these were two different studies, two different study populations. So we need more data to see how good each one is. But the bottom line is we've got two drugs that look like they're going to be very good candidates for perhaps as early as the end of this year, but certainly by the first quarter of uh, 2022. Can you tell me more about the Delta Plus variant? Well, Delta itself uh, is incredibly formidable and now is the gorilla in the room. Essentially, all cases in the United States of COVID are due to Delta. Delta Plus, we were concerned about. It emerged, um, we saw it in India, and then we saw it again in uh, other parts of the world. And we've seen uh, scattered cases here, but it hasn't seemed to compete very well with uh, Delta. Um, so it's, it's a Delta virus, but it's slightly changed in ways that 
worried us in terms of how well it would respond to the immunity we got from the vaccines or from previous infection, and would it make us sicker? And to date, we don't have any evidence that it makes us sicker, and it appears to be responding well to the vaccines. So Delta itself seems to be um, the one that uh, the, other, the other variants and even cousins like Delta Plus are having a tough time competing with it. Can you t- uh, talk to me about the the predominant variants that we are seeing in the U.S. now? Like, what are the top variants that are getting uh, people sick with COVID? Actually, that's an easy answer. Um, it's Delta. Delta squeezed out Alpha, which was a big, which was a moderate problem uh, in the spring for us, and a big problem in in uh, the United Kingdom last December and January. People were worrying worried uh, early this summer or even into the summer with mu and iota and lambda, and none of those have seemed to be able to outcompete delta. So again, if you get COVID in the United States today, it's gonna to be delta. And if you get COVID most any place in the world today, it's likely to be delta. Are you worried about other variants emerging that are, uh, that are worse than delta? Well, we of course worry about that. Um, it, it would be a real setback if we had, let's say, a, a new variant come up like Delta came up in June here. This new variant, if it, was, if it didn't respond to the immunity we got from previous infection or from our vaccination, and it had the same degree of what we call virulence, it could make everybody just as sick or even sicker. That would be a real big problem for us. The good news is that we haven't seen any evidence of that at this point. But you know, it's, it's a further argument for getting not just people in this country, but people around the world vaccinated because people who aren't vaccinated are viral factories. They're gonna produce billions of viral particles. And when you're a viral factory, you're a variant factory because sometimes when the virus reproduces, it makes a mistake. And most of those mistakes are lethal to the virus but occasionally they're not, and occasionally they give the virus an advantage. That's a variant, and that would be very disconcerting. So we are in a race with getting the population immune, uh, the world immune, really, um, so that we don't keep, people don't keep generating these variants. And at the same time, of course, getting vaccinated is going to protect them. Well, John Schwartzberg, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're welcome, Ezra. It's always a pleasure. This is how Jeopardy, the classic quiz show played in three rounds, is introduced each weekday. Now, Jeopardy has been getting a lot of media attention this year, and it started with a farewell message showcasing the career of host Alex Trebek. Once before I go, I want you to know that I would do it all again. Sure, I made the same mistake. It's a yellow hammer, not a yellow hammer. <laughs> remember, ladies. He was and still is a beloved icon in game show history. A native to Sudbury, Canada, Alex hosted not only Jeopardy but High Rollers, Double Dare, To Tell the Truth, The Wizard of Odds, and more. 
He truly brought something that can never be replicated to the show's style. Since his death, the show has tried out celebrities to become new hosts and eventually appointed executive producer Mike Richards to the job. But after only five episodes, the show fired him because of sexist remarks that he had said on his podcast. Now, Big Bang Theory star Mayim Bialik and Ken Jennings, the Jeopardy contestant known for the longest Jeopardy streak in history, 74 wins, are hosting. And to top it all off, Jeopardy contestant Matt Amodio, who went on to win 38 games from July 21st to October 11th, was on the show. Over the course of his run, Matt Amodio played against Christopher Stuckey, who like all other contestants on the show, was introduced by Johnny Gilbert, Jeopardy's 93-year-old announcer. I spoke to Christopher Stuckey about what it was like to meet Madame Odio, who had won 25 games and $893,201 at the time that they competed against each other. It was it was uh, sort of a thrill when we when we were there waiting to see whether Matt would come in or not. Uh, everybody in the room, the other contestants had obviously been watching and knew that we might face Matt, but there had also been five games taped that we didn't know the outcome of. So it was possible that Matt could have uh, ended his streak before our tape day. We didn't know. It wasn't too long after we arrived that Matt arrived as well, and so we knew. Okay, well. This is this is what we're going to be up against. I would say that the uh, the camaraderie among the group of contestants there for our tape day and and from what I've heard for many tape days is very strong. Uh, people are excited. People are um, you know living out a dream in many cases, and everybody's experiencing it together. And so we we uh, bonded pretty quickly over that. And and Matt uh, was right there with us. He was not standoffish uh, like you think a, a someone who had been around the block there a couple of times and uh, and knew the experience much better than us uh, could be. He didn't, uh, you know, attempt to intimidate anybody in any way. He was as engaging and nice as you could hope for. I got to have lunch with Matt, actually. I sat, sat near him as we had lunch during uh, the, the taping day, and we talked about his hometown of Cleveland. We talked about uh, his studies, my job, baseball, just all over the place. He was just just really, really a nice guy to, to get to know, and I was glad that I got to do that. But the only reason that Christopher even got to step foot on the Jeopardy set was because he passed multiple tests and trials, which he explained to me in our interview, along with the training that went into his run. Jeopardy contestants trained rigorously. They remind me of weightlifters, lifting heavy loads with powerful muscles, over and over again until they become stronger, whether that's through rapid-fire trivia or heavy iron discs. They give an online test now, which I think you can take uh, pretty much any time throughout the year, um, which consists of 50 questions, and uh, they're all time-limited. So you would get on the computer and, and answer these 50 questions as quickly as you could. I think they give about 15 seconds apiece. Um, you have to pass that test, and they don't tell you how many questions you have to get right in order to pass it. From what we understand, based on comparing notes with other people online, people think that it's about 35 questions you have to get right out of 50. Uh, once you've passed that test, then you are in a uh, pool that you might get randomly picked from to go through a more detailed audition. So for me, I got an email that said, hey, you've passed your most recent test that you took. I've taken the test a lot of times. Uh, would you like to 
to do a Zoom audition. So this first Zoom audition round was just taking that same type of test again and trying to pass it again, but this time on camera so that they could see that I wasn't receiving any help or, or cheating in any way. And then when I passed that, I had a final audition, which was also a Zoom call with 10 or so other people where they would do a mock uh, game of Jeopardy. Why in the first place did you want to become a Jeopardy contestant? What was the training that you went through so that you could be ready for a Jeopardy? You know, a lot of people do a lot of studying to when they when they get a call to go on Jeopardy. I did some, but not as much as I think uh, other folks did. I felt like I was in a position where I could probably do pretty well just based on what I already knew. And I was judging on watching the show a lot and answering a lot of the questions that come up. Uh, what I was worried about was that I wouldn't be fast enough to buzz in and it wouldn't matter if I knew the answers to the questions or not. So I actually spent a good deal of time practicing uh, my reflexes, learning how I planned to hold the buzzer and testing myself using a, an app and a, uh, a book by, I think it is Fritz Hoffnagel, who was a previous uh, Jeopardy contestant, who wrote a short book just about his technique on the buzzer. So I, I read that book and, and practiced using some uh, some online tools that I could find with a with like an Xbox controller, learning to try and get faster with my reflexes. And frankly, I think that that helped. I don't I don't think I lost because I couldn't buzz in quickly enough. <laughs> but uh, beyond that, I I went on um, a website called J Archive and uh, would just practice answering the questions off of that. Sometimes I practiced answering questions that my wife would read to me while I was uh, playing old arcade games to simulate sort of being distracted or, or having to, to recall information while I was also, you know, not able to concentrate uh, directly. So I, I, th I, I had a couple of interesting, I guess, techniques for how I prepared. But uh, as far as subjects I brushed up on, it would just be American presidents and geography. And those were the two that I felt like come up very often and that I don't feel very confident in. Well, Christopher Stuckey, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure, Ezra. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. While you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Another way to listen is by listening every other week on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KJVM Community Radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, go to KJVM's website, kgvm.org, to listen on their live stream. You know, this was such a good episode, and it's, it's coming to a close, and... It was kind of bitersweet, you know, like that was really bad. That was so bad. Okay, but anyway, goodbye. We're going to have a new episode out next week. Uh -huh.